Thank you. Good morning, church. It's good to see you all again. Uh, it's always such a pleasure to be here um, at Parker Ford Church with brothers and sisters in Christ. So you can take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 John. We're going to start at the end of chapter 2. And uh, today we'll be focusing on your, uh, your series of, on refocusing on Christ, um, looking at specifically um, what it means for God uh, to be our Father, what it means for us to be His children and the way in, that he calls us to walk in that, um, in this season, in this time. So we'll start with the reading of the text, and then we'll um, hop right into it and uh, see what God has for us uh, together this morning. So First John chapter 2, uh, we'll start at the end. You know, um, when, when, the stru- when the scriptures were, were structured um, or written, there were no chapters or verse breaks um, that, that like Paul or John or any of the gospel writers wrote in. We put those in later and did a pretty lousy job in some situations, and this is one of them. So, so John's thought here at the end of chapter 2 in verse 28 actually is the beginning of a new thought that extends into chapter 3. So chapter 3, verse 1 isn't actually chapter 3, verse 1. There, there's a paragraph that starts in 2.28 that extends all the way through um, 3, verse 10, and we're going to be looking at um, through 3, verse 7, so 2.28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. So uh, at our house right now, we're getting ready to move. Uh, We're moving into a a new home, and moving is essentially, in my opinion, like the worst thing that you could ever do, Um, like how all this stuff got into one place and now we're going to move it into a new place and, and all the projects that come with it. Um, you know, it's just this, this like, oppressive nature of things, trying to get ready to, to shift things. So this past week, I was studying this text and was just, you know, listening to the Lord like, uh, for, for ways to think about this and apply it. And verse 28 there has a really interesting concept in it when um, it talks about, uh, you know, that when Jesus appears, we will not um, feel shame at his coming. And that word appears is, is a, very, it's a very John way of thinking about the presence of Christ. We tend to think about the presence of Christ in terms of like volume, um, so that the second coming is going to be this massive, you know, trumpet sounds and the, 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 the hordes of angels' armies come sweeping in, you know, to destroy in this massive battle, sin, death, and the grave forever and ever. And it's going to be this massive, momentous thing. That's not John. When John talks about the coming of the presence of Christ, he talks about appearing. Just sort of, almost like he's already there. That Jesus is sort of here in our midst. And if the veil between 
um, heaven and earth were to lift right now, Jesus would just sort of appear. It's sort of the upper room concept where the disciples are gathered together and suddenly Jesus walks through a wall. And where, what, what has he done? He's, he's appeared in their, in their midst. So I was getting re- we're getting the house ready. And uh, in my boys' room, if you open the door to the boys' room, it, it opens and it, cl- it, it hides a closet that sits behind that door. So if you open that door, there's a closet back in there. And uh, this past week, um, we were getting ready with different projects. So I told my boys, we had this, um, in the basement, we had this big area that was just completely disorganized and whatnot, as basements tend to get, that needed to get boxed up. I didn't care how it got boxed up. I just know that we need this stuff there. I'll organize it when we get there. So I told the boys, um, here's some boxes, here's some packing tape. Put all this junk in these boxes, stack these boxes over there. When you're done that, come and find me, and I'll give you your next job. In the meantime, what they didn't know is that my project was to go upstairs into that closet that gets hidden when their door opens because there's a faulty light up in the, uh, uh, that, that had sort of like pulled away from the ceiling, so I wanted to put a new porcelain fixture on that. So I told the boys, do this job. And, I know, and the boys just got a new Xbox game. That, that, that's key. They just got a new Xbox game, and they really wanted to play this Xbox game. And I knew they wanted to play this Xbox game, but I told them, no Xbox, like no video games, because we got work to do. Work until the work is done, then you get to have your fun. That's my, that's my granddad's mantra. So, uh, uh, so we had this job, and uh, I went upstairs, took my tools upstairs, and went into that closet and started working on this light. Pretty soon, I hear these footsteps up the steps, and the door to their room opens, hiding me in the closet, right? And my boys, I think they thought I was outside in the backside of the shed because I had said I wanted to get that organized too because we were going to move that first. They didn't know that I was in that closet. And so that door opens, and I'm hidden now in the closet, and my boys hop on their couch and grab the Xbox controllers, and I hear one say to the other, say the older say to the younger, just one round. He won't know. <laughs> it was, I mean, I could not, I was just, I'm sitting in the closet, just, my, my, my boys are just completely disobeying me, and I'm so excited that I found the perfect illustration to give to you on Sunday morning. Like, oh, this is wonderful. This is great. And so they're sitting there, and they turn this game on, just, just one round. He won't know. And here I am in the closet hidden, and it was, I wish you could have seen their faces when I pushed that door, and it sort of slammed shut, <laughs> and they whipped around, and they saw me, because dad had suddenly appeared in the room. <laughs> I mean, it was just this monumentous moment between my sons and I, and, and, and then what did they feel? Shame. Why? Yeah, they, they, were, they were just straight up disobeying. They were completely out of line with what it was that I had told them to do. You know, and it was, it was this crazy, crazy thing. Now, at that point in time, like it was, it was all so coming together at this point in time that um, it's easy as a parent, I'm sure that you experienced this if you have kids, um, it's easy as a, as a parent to, um, to either underreact or to overreact. Right in, in all of these situations, or ah, that's kids being kids, or, or you know, you've committed the world's greatest sin. Um, and so one of the things that we try and do as parents is to teach our kids that disobedience, it's not just that your actions are wrong, but it's that you're not being who it is that we called you to be, or we're not, you're not being who it is that God made you to be in this situation. Like, you're, you're missing something, not just about what you did wrong, 
but you're missing something about who you actually are as a person. So, so when you disobey mom and dad, it's not just that, I mean, is it really that big of a deal, you know, that, that the kids did that? Did, did that, like, shake my world or affect my checkbook, you know, or, or just completely destroy the environment of my home or family? No. No, but it was disobedience. They were out of line with dad. They, they weren't being who they were. At that point in time, they weren't being sons the way that God called them to be sons. They decided to be something other than sons in the way that God called them to be sons. They decided to start calling the shots for themselves instead of just simply living by what it is that dad had lined out for them. All right, so what actually happened was something in their mind about who they are as people became misaligned with what it is that I had set down for them. The concept of shame, if you look at it, it, it interestingly, if you think back to the Garden of Eden, shame is the, is the first negative emotion felt in the history of humanity. God had set a standard, and humans failed to meet that standard. That's shame. Shame is, is, is the missing of the mark. Shame is a, uh, a standard that is set either by someone else or by yourself or by God that says that you didn't meet up to this standard. Shame can be helpful sometimes. When you and I miss God's mark, when you and I sin against the Lord, right, we feel shame. That is sin that causes us to feel that shame. God does not cause his children to feel shame. God is not a shame-giving God. That's not his nature. Shame is a result of sin, God uses shame that is the result of sin in our lives to draw us back to the reality of who we are in him. Shame becomes really toxic when, it, when it's our own standard that we've set for ourselves and then we miss it, or when the standard of somebody else is given to us in an inappropriate way. It's like, you didn't measure up to my expectations of you. You didn't measure up to what I thought that you should be. You failed me like this. You failed me like that. Here in 1 John 2, 28, John starts off right away with this idea, this idea of we don't need to feel shame before the Lord. We don't need to feel shame before the Lord. And this is sort of like Christianity 101, right? Like God loves us and he set us free from guilt and shame. But the problem is, is that shame is continually hunting the children of God. Shame is continually trying to get us to be the posture by which we view God so that our fear of the Lord is not a healthy fear of the Lord. It's actually like terror of the fact that God isn't going to love us anymore if we don't measure up to some standard. John gives us in chapter 2, verse 28 here, he speaks right, at the, right off the bat. He says that we don't have to be afraid. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Now, this is John, right? This is the Apostle John. This guy that wrote 1 John here is also the dude who wrote the Gospel of John. And if you read the Gospel of John, there's some famous passages in there. One of the most famous is John chapter 15, where Jesus says, that, or, or, uh, where Jesus says I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. And then what is the continual refrain that Jesus tells his disciples in John 15? He tells them to abide in the vine. Abide in me. Dwell in me. Stay connected to me. At the point that you get disconnected from me, then you've got a serious problem. Notice what he does not tell them in John 15. You can look at this for yourself. Is that he does not tell them to work hard to bear fruit. 
An apple tree does not produce apples because it works hard at it. An apple tree produces apples because it's an apple tree. Right? An apple tree doesn't think within itself, right? And then suddenly there's like apples. Like, that's time. No, no, what is this? This is like slow, organic growth. The bee comes along, it pollinates the flowers. The flowers bud, the fruit begins to grow, you know, and it, it, it grows. And it, 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 Why is it doing this? It's doing this because it's an apple tree. But if you go up to that apple tree with a saw and you cut off one of those branches and you take that branch into your house and you go, this is going to be great. In a few months, we're going to have apples. And I'm going to have to go outside to pick them. Well, you're just nuts. Right? And that's insane. That's absolutely crazy. Because we've completely disconnected that branch from the place that it could actually bear fruit from. An apple tree doesn't bear fruit because it works hard at it. An apple tree bears fruit because it stays connected to itself. And because it's an apple tree. And because it's an apple tree, boom, apples. And there you go. It's, it's, it's this incredible process that says if the tree lives as the connected form of life-giving treeness, that it is, then it will get fruit. But fruit, service is never the root of devotion. Did you catch that? Service is never the root of devotion. It grows as a fruit of a life that remains in the vine. So when John says here, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, you will have confidence and not shrink at his coming. I mean, just think about that closet door closing and me with all of my beardness, you know, and intensity stepping out and going, I mean, what did my boys do? Boom. Oh, like, man, he's good. He's good. I don't know how he teleported himself into that closet, but that was amazing. All right, that's what my oldest boy. <laughs> but it was also this like shame thing, like, oh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen now? What's going to happen now? My goal is not for my boys to feel shame, right? I mean, I could have done that. I could have stepped out there and told them what horrible humans they were and how terrible it was that they had disobeyed in that moment. Or I could call them back to who it is they actually are. Like, boys, you're my sons. You know that I'm your dad, and because I'm your dad... I gave you instructions. The best thing that you could do for yourselves at that point in time, not just for me, but for yourselves, is to follow my instructions. This is a lesson that we have to learn now together about how I can be more fully me and you can be more fully you, which means now this whole situation, I'll talk over with your mother and we'll figure out how to creatively train you so that, so that you think differently about who you are the next time a situation like this rolls around so that they can then be right, right, right with us and right with the Lord, which is exactly what John gets to in verse 29. He floats this new idea of righteousness. Now, we have not seen John get very big on righteousness up until this point, um, but he's about to launch into a whole tirade on it all through chapter 3 and chapter 4. You'll just keep coming back to this in the coming weeks, this idea of, of righteousness. If you know, verse, verse 29, now again, this is, we can have confidence before him, and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Now, just to contrast this quick, another thing we had to do was paint the shed. 
So this is, this is a big job to paint the shed, something that takes some responsibility. And, 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 and painting's important, <laughs> right? You've got to be careful about how you paint. So I told my oldest boy uh, a couple weeks ago, paint the shed. Now, I think that you can do this. And he did a good job. And he actually came to me and was like, Dad, I'm done, and walked out with me with there. And I could, I could sort of feel in him like he was like, yeah, I did a good job. I want Dad to see that I did a good job in this, right? Confident, confident there, right? Come and look at this, not shrinking in shame, but confidently engaging, like, like hey, <laughs> I, I actually did what it is you called me to do, and frankly, I think it's pretty good. What do you think? Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. I'm going to read that again. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Living in our identities as children of God, which is what John calls us here in verse 28, little children, produces with us a confident ability to stand before God in alignment with him. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done in us. And when we live according to that identity, then we are released to see God, to see Christ appearing in our midst in a way that confidently allows us to declare he is here and we are here and we are together. And now we can go be instruments of righteousness in all the different places that we are. Verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we do. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we do God's children now. Right? Does this make any sense to anyone? No, because that's not what John says. John does not say, See what kind of love the Father has given to us so that we should be called children of God, and so we do. My kids are not my kids because of the actions that they perform. My kids are my kids because they're mine, right? And God gave them to me. John says, so we are. So we are. This is your identity in Christ. Your identity is a child of God. Your identity is rooted and grounded in the love of God. And we get very, very busy at telling each other what to do. When we would spend our time much more effectively spiritually by speaking to one another who we are. Parker Ford Church, I don't, I mean, you folks have been in existence for a long time. You know your text, you're led by good leaders. Like, you know what to do. What slips away, though, is our identity. Shame begins to redefine us. That confidence to stand before God, it goes away. Pain finds us, suffering hurts, sin gets in our lives, our relationships get out of whack. Before we know it, we're believing things that are not true about who we are. And when we stop understanding ourselves from God's perspective, we start living from lower perspectives. And when that happens, we lose our righteousness. Did you catch that? We lose our righteousness because righteousness is not about doing. Righteousness is about being. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who did not know sin to become sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of Christ in him. The righteousness of Christ is a part of your new identity in Jesus. 
It is a part of who you are. It is not primarily about what you do. Who you are should birth what you do. But until you see yourself as righteous, you will not actually live righteously. You might do good stuff, but it'll just be legalism. It'll just be moralism. It'll just be niceness. It'll just be a good deed here and a good deed there. Because the bottom line is, is that your righteousness in Christ is an extension of who you are in your identity. So if you see yourself as a shame-filled person who's always failing and always falling under God's you know, hurtful thumb as he, as he oppresses you and shows you what's up, and, you know, and that view of God, then all you're ever going to be doing righteous stuff for is to try and impress him and to get him to love you more. Like, like God, can't you see what I'm doing here? Can't you see how hard I'm working for you? And you're not following through on who you are. Like, I'm being right, but are you being right? The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will yet, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Not as who we paint him to be. Not as what sin tells us that he is. Not through deceptions from the enemy. Not through deceptions from our heritage. Not through our past. But we shall actually see him rightly. We, we can fully engage his righteousness and live as righteous children of God who don't shrink from him in shame, but who abide in him in this deep, love-connected relationship with God and who then live differently as a result of it. And this is key. Verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So anytime you read a book of the Bible, you got to understand, like, what's the situation that this is being written in? Why is this happening? What's the point? The book of 1 John is specifically written to combat an early church heresy called Gnosticism. Let me hear you say Gnosticism. Gnosticism, that's right. Gnosticism is spelled G-N-O-S-T. That's the beginning of it. It's from the Greek word gnosis, which is knowledge. Gnosticism says this. Gnosticism says that the spirit is good and the material is bad. Spirit is good and the material is bad. So the whole goal in life is to seek like really cool spiritual knowledge, to, to, to have some great personal spiritual revelation of God and, to, and to, to engage with him in this like really spiritual place that enables me to know myself better and to know my world better. Gnosis, Gnosticism, special knowledge, spirit knowledge, really uh, ethereal and, 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 and non-defined and, and feeling kind of a thing. Over here, the material, eh, it's not so big of a deal. What actually happens in real time, not so big a deal. Gnosticism allows for lawlessness because all I'm seeking and all that's important is this special knowledge, this special spiritual knowledge. So what I do with my life, I can sleep around with whoever I want to. 
right? I can, I can pretty much do whatever I want. I, I, can, I can live my life. I can care about the poor. I can not care about the poor. All right, I can give myself to addictions or not give myself to addictions. I can be immoral. I can be, um, I can be unfair in my business practices. What I actually do in my real life, no big, no big deal. So I live like this during the day, and then I go over here to my spiritual experience, you know, and whatever other gathering that is, and I get this special knowledge over here when how I actually live doesn't matter so much. Spirit is good, material is bad. Now we can look at this as the church and be like, eh, that's not us. I'd say be, let's be really careful about that. Um, how many of you have any friends that say, you know, I'm a really spiritual person? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a spiritual person. Or I really love Jesus. I'm not so big on the church. That's Gnosticism. That's Gnosticism that says I can have this special knowledge of who Jesus is while not being so big on his body. It's like saying to your wife, I love your face, but I hate the rest of you. You know, you, you can't love the head and hate the body. It, it doesn't work. But we have this special knowledge, this special intimacy over here, whereas over here in our real lives and in our real time, I take it or leave it, pick and choose, do what I want, not do what I want. This is lawlessness. Folks, look at me. Lawlessness sounds like it's a loss of morality. It's not. Lawless people believe they are very right. They're just right about the things that they've determined are right. That's still lawlessness. Lawlessness doesn't mean, I'm just going to anarchy, go do whatever I want. Ah." No, no, no. Lawlessness just simply says that I determine what's right. And so even people who believe in this chaotic anarchy, that's still a law. There's still a way of thinking about that. And so I, I create this special spirit place for myself over here, and then I completely miss what it is that's going on in the real time of my life over here. And I stop being righteous. I stop being aligned with God. Listen, John is not advocating for morality here. He is not advocating for morality. He is not telling you to do all the right things that would betray the context that he's writing from. All he's been talking about to this point is your identity that you're a child, that you're a son of God. So we are. And because we are that, then that means that in Christ, who is with us and who we abide in, he now is the one that everything is contained in. So be it both spirit and be it both material, all of these things are called to being under the lordship of Christ. You can't divide these two things out. And when you do, when you split yourself in that way, when you split your thinking in that way, now suddenly you become God, where you determine what's right over here and how the world's going to work for me according to this special knowledge that I have, but then I step into the real time of my life over here, and I can just, I can sort of do whatever I want. And that goes either way. Either I can sin and, you know, or I can be really righteous. I can be really holy. But I'm still not connected to God. It's still my own special knowledge. It's just that I built myself up to believe that moralism was what God actually wants from me. Moralism is not what God wants from you. What God wants from you is the fullness of you, your heart, 
your mind, your spirit, your soul, connection to him, abiding in him, where service is not the root of your devotion, where it's the fruit of what it means for you to abide in Christ. At the point that we disconnect from the vine and invent our own special knowledge and our own special ways of living and being and doing things, that's when we embrace lawlessness. And lawlessness is as prevalent in the church as it is anywhere else in the world. John is writing to a church. He is writing to believers. He is writing to people who want to have this special knowledge but not live their lives rightly. This is one place that can show up in our churches. The world is horrible and I can't wait to get out of here. That's Gnosticism. Gnosticism is God just get me to heaven. This world is so bad and it's so messed up and I'm so tired of hearing Donald Trump and Ted Cruz argue with each other. You know, and I'm so, I can't even b- believe that I've got to vote for any of these people, you know, in either party this coming November. Oh, that's all right, though, because now we'll get out of here. You know, someday, and then we, even so, Lord, come quickly. That kind of, that's Gnosticism. God does not want us to live in these two different worlds. Y- you understand the end of all things is actually the resurrection of that body that you are sitting in right now, being made a new creation. Spirit and material being redeemed in Christ. So that when he appears, we do not shrink because we're people who have lived our lives in two different compartments. We're not people who have ignored the material just to be spiritual. Or we're not people who have just lived in lawlessness, making up our own ways of doing things, while also betraying who it is that our deepest identities are but we're actually whole people who abide in Christ. So I'll just keep going with this, with my boys, who provide endless illustrations, apparently, about how spiritual principles work. I just want to make sure I'm in the right spot. Yeah. So another experience I had with my sons, um, well, actually it was our whole family. We went to Harrisburg. This is, uh, I don't know, four or five years ago. Um, my, my daughter is, is an artist, and she took art lessons in Harrisburg. And so um, we went down there on a, she, it was a Saturday. Yeah, that was her art lesson. And uh, so we went down on a Saturday, and it was particularly difficult to find parking in Harrisburg on, on this Saturday. And we couldn't figure out why. So we had to park further away from her place, which was on Front Street. Front Street runs right along the river. It's, it's one of the major roads in, in Harrisburg. It's a beautiful area. And Front Street empties onto this big park down on the south end uh, of Harrisburg. And so we, uh, um, we started walking toward Front Street, which is uh, where her art studio was, where she had her lesson. That's where the art council, um, their office was. And the closer we got, the crazier things got. And people were all around and whatnot. And it was a very interesting group of people. And here, we had happened upon Harrisburg's gay pride parade. And so we, uh, you know, it's sort of like, well, this is going to be an interesting day. All right. So here we walk right up to Front Street, and here's the gay pride parade going down the street, and we take our daughter to the art council, and we get her checked in and everything. And now we've got 90 minutes to kill at this point in time, uh, Sherry and I and our two boys. It was a beautiful day. We figured we would just hang out along the river, which we did, just not in the venue that we thought. So we're at this gay pride parade. This is my first gay pride, gay pride parade. And uh, 
it was this, and, and so we're watching everything, and we're standing there, and it, it, was, it was a perfectly civil, fine event. There was no stupidity or anything like that, people marching for a cause and whatnot. And we're standing there, and on one side of us was this guy um, who turned out that he was a, a former pastor, and his daughter was marching in this parade. So we talked back and forth just about life and about the tensions that he felt in his own spirit and whatnot. And we started sort of walking with him down the sidewalk as his daughter's group was going down. As we walked down the street, we began to hear this very loud noise. And this loud noise was some preachers who had these megaphones attached to their hips, these big megaphones attached to their hips, and they had these horrible, hate-filled signs uh, standing there, uh, and they had microphones, and they were screaming judgment and damnation and hellfire upon the people in this and at this parade. I mean, just just being vicious to them and, and, and calling for, like, disease to find them and suffering and it was just it was it was awful and so while i would not agree with the purpose or cause in the parade itself i also was not in favor of what these guys were doing in fact i was much more angry at them because i felt like they were betraying the one that i love right the one who i'm called to abide in and so we're we're there and i'm just oh man and i'm really starting to get angry because here's people who need Jesus, and here's people who say they have Jesus, and I say that they're giving Jesus to them, but they're not giving Jesus to them. They're just giving hate to them. It's just hate and violence, right? And, and I'm just very, very upset. <laughs> when I get upset, I tend to do things. And uh, so I actually tried to confront one of these guys, and he just called me uh, a, well, He called me many things that we don't need to get into and told me that he hoped that I got AIDS too. So... There was just, it was this, this hor- horrific situation where I could not make sense of what was going on, right? Because on the one side was, was, was all the people in the festival. On the other side is all these Christians just spewing hatred and violence and nastiness at them. And I'm just thinking to myself, I, it was this spiritually loud, noisy, confusing place. And I'm just like, I just, I, somebody has to bring the presence of God to this place. <laughs> Please, God, like come and bring some kind of peace or order or something. At that point in time, I turn around and uh, uh, because I lost my kids. You ever do that? <laughs> I lost my kids. Like, where are they at? They're, they're around here somewhere. We had, we had managed to get over on the river side of Front Street. And um, on the river, the, the whole of Front Street is lined with oak trees, just gorgeous oak trees, all the way, all the way down Front Street. And um, there, are the, there are these uh, drainage uh, plates, these drainage areas where, you know, things go to and um, where the water goes to. And then the water streams down into the Susquehanna, you know, so everything drains toward the river. My boys had collected this mound of acorns, I mean, this big mound of acorns that was sitting between them. And they were standing about 10 yards from, uh, from one of these grates. And this grate, it, it was circular, and it had all these lines in it. But in the center, there was a hole, like about that, that, about that big. And they were standing there with acorn, and they were just popping them at this thing to have a contest to see who could get it to go into the middle, into the middle hole. You know, just, just standing there doing that. And I'm I turn around and I see what they're doing. And they, they were just having a blast. They were just having so much fun. 
competing with each other, and the score was like 7-6, and I'm watching them, and, 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 and Ben puts one in, and he cheers like he just you know, scored the winning touchdown in the Super Bowl, you know, and, and, they're, they're, back, and they're, just, they're just sitting there like this. And the Lord was like, this is what you're asking for. In the midst of all this chaos, you know, this politically fueled and uh, uh, parade with all kinds of objectives and, 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 and leanings and moral, m- moral ramifications in that direction, on top of these preachers who are hate-filled and brutal to them and not representing God or his church at all, in the midst of all this chaos and insanity, in the midst of what essentially was pure and unadulterated lawlessness by everybody there, here my boys had found this secret spot where they were taking acorns and just plunking them into the Susquehanna River. They didn't know it. They were just playing a game. They were just being boys. But they're sitting there launching these things in. And you know what kind of tree an acorn grows, right? It grows an oak tree. And so these oaks, you know what they do? They go in that drain, and they go down the drain, and where do they find themselves? The Susquehanna. And they float down the Susquehanna, and these acorns, they make their way out to the edge, and some squirrel's coming along, and he grabs that acorn, and he takes it, and it's time to save up for the winter, and so he buries it somewhere, and then the squirrel gets old and forgets where he puts it. And, uh, <laughs> and what, what, grows in, what grows in the place where the squirrel forgot it? An oak. That's right, an oak. And so my boys, just by being boys in the midst of a place where nobody is abiding in Christ. They just do what boys do. And they start planting oak trees just because they're enjoying life. You remember what the Messiah brings, right, in Isaiah 61? The people of God will be called what? Oaks of righteousness for his own glory. John is calling us here in John chapter 3, back to our core identity as children of God. People who are whole before him, not seeking this special knowledge, not living in this lawless environment, not declaring our own truth, but living under God in him so that when he appears, we have confidence and there is no shame at his appearing because we are being who it is that he called us to be, sons of God, children of the Most High, victorious before him in all things, not giving in to Gnosticism, not giving in to shame, but standing as oaks of righteousness that he has called us to be because he is our Father. We are his children, and so we are. Let's pray. God, thank you for who we are in you. We bless you. We love you. We thank you for your presence in our midst. God, continue to root us in our identities in Christ. Make us people who know you deeply, who live with you, who live from you, who abide in the vine. And from that place, being fully aligned right in you, because our identities are that we have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. So God, open us more fully to this revelation, more fully to who we are in you. In Jesus' name, amen.